Shabbat Shalom. So we are um, in part six on my series, and it is our final in a six-part series. <laughs> Living in an evil world. And we've been looking at the life of Daniel and through the lens of Daniel's life to discover how to live in a crazy upside-down world that's opposed to God and his ways. And we've seen in Daniel some of those answers. And of course, none of us are a Daniel, but the story is written for us so that we could take those principles in Daniel's life and apply them in our own circumstances and to one degree or another experience what Daniel experienced. We can learn how to thrive in a pagan world, in a pagan culture. We can rise as the people of God because he's sovereign over it all. So in this series, we're now into Daniel in his transition from Babylon to the next world empire, the mighty empire of Babylon led by Nebuchadnezzar has come to an end and it's, it's now on its way out. The medio Persian empire, the Medes and the Persians come against this great king and his empire and they basically take him to the ground and they overtake his kingdom and they emerge as the next great kingdom in the writings of Daniel. So we're looking at the medio Persian kingdom. Daniel now, being at the top, right up there uh, uh, next to Nebuchadnezzar, is now finding himself once again in a free fall. Where is he going to land? Where is he going to emerge? This is the new kingdom with a new king and a new way of living. So we'll pick up the reading. This is King Darius of the Medo-Persian Empire. Darius decided it would be good to, uh, to appoint... 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom. Over these satraps were three officials. Daniel was one of the three. So immediately this new kingdom comes in with a new administration and this king takes Daniel because of who he was to Nebuchadnezzar and appoints him as one of the three that are over the 120 who will rule and govern the Medo-Persian Empire. The satraps were to report to these three officials so that the king wouldn't be cheated. This man, Daniel, distinguished himself among the other officials and satraps because there was an extraordinary spirit in him. Daniel, one of the three, positions himself in such a way that he's kind of like the point for the three. He emerges as the strong, the lead of these three who are over the satraps. And why? Because he had this incredible spirit in him. The king thought about putting him in charge of the whole kingdom. We've seen this before with Daniel, marked with the favor of God. He just rises and rises, even in the midst of the judgment that's upon Israel, right? Even in the midst of judgment, he finds the goodness of God. So the king is thinking of putting him in charge of the whole kingdom. Think about this for a moment. Are we not like Daniel's? Do we not have the spirit of God in us? Do you not have an exceptional spirit 
operating in you. Peter says in his um, proclamation of the gospel at Pentecost, he says, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. The promise of God is that he will pour out his spirit on us, that his spirit will come and dwell in us, that you and I in Messiah have this extraordinary, excellent spirit. Our job is to learn how to cultivate and build relationship with the Holy Spirit in us, to learn to follow the lead of the Holy Spirit in us so we can live the thrill of the journey of God and what he wants to do around us in our lives via his Spirit. God in you. Think about that. God is in us. Our potential is unlimited. It's unlimited. But... We have to learn how to submit and build a relationship with this Holy Spirit. Let's go back to Daniel, chapter 6 and verse 4. So the other officials and satraps tried to find something to accuse Daniel of in his duties for the kingdom. But they couldn't find anything wrong because he was trustworthy. No error, error or fault could be found. These other guys, they're jealous. These other guys, they're envious because they can see Daniel rising to the highest place of the kingdom. And they'll have none of that. They're going to sabotage that. They're going to undermine that. They're going to join together and conspire to take him out. Isn't that the ways of the world? Isn't that what you see almost everywhere you go all around you? People envious of others, people jealous of others. We see that in politics today, don't we? We see this conspiring of different people to take out their opponents because they're greedy and they're hungry for power and fame. And this is happening now to Daniel. Verse 5, these men said, We won't find anything to accuse this man Daniel unless we find it in his religious practices. Think of how cunning and evil these men are. They're going to use... Daniel's religion to be his undoing. Verse 6, so these officials and satraps went to the king as a group. They said to him, may King Darius live forever. All the officials, governors, satraps, advisors, and mayors agreed that the king should make a statute and enforce a decree. The decree should state that for the next 30 days, whoever asks anything from any god or person except you, your majesty, will be thrown into the lion's den. Your majesty, issue this decree and sign it. According to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no one could change it or repeal it. So Darius signed the written decree. They united and conspired. They came together to take this man out. And they went to the king with a plan that even the king did not understand. And in the end, the king makes an edict and signs it. And as a result, Daniel is going to be taken out. 
Verse 10. When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went to his house and cried like a baby. Sorry, that's not how it reads. Think about that though, right? You got the whole entire empire against you. They've conspired. They've lied to the king. They've got him, you know, a decree that's going to end Daniel's life. You would think he would just give up. It's like, how can I win? Everyone is against me. And now I'm going to die. What does Daniel do? Does he live in light of his circumstances? Or does he rise above his circumstances and say, no, I'm going to live by faith in the living God. This is not the end of the story. How many times do we put ourselves under our circumstances? How many times do we look in the natural and say, well, this is the way it's going to be, rather than I'm going to put my trust in the God who's above all of these circumstances and he can do anything he chooses to do. When Daniel learned about that document, he went to his house. An upper room in his house had windows that opened in the direction of Jerusalem. There, Daniel prayed three times each day. He got on his knees and prayed to his God. He had always praised God this way. For Daniel, nothing changed. They came, they said, here's the decree. You cannot pray to your God for 30 days. We'll see what Daniel does. Now, these other men, they knew. They knew who Daniel was. They knew his convictions. They knew he would not compromise. That's why they got the king to sign the edict. And sure enough, what does Daniel do? He doesn't bat an eye. He goes straight home. He opens up those windows and he just starts praying like he's always prayed. Nothing changed for him. He stayed the course. Daniel's the picture of covenant fidelity. He's loyal to the laws of his God. So Daniel goes and nothing changes. He just prays like he's always prayed. Verse 11, one of those times the men came in as a group and found Daniel praying and pleading to his God. Then they went and spoke to the king about his decree. They asked, didn't you sign a decree which stated that for 30 days, whoever asks for anything from any God or person except you, your majesty will be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, that's true. According to the law in the Medes and Persians, the decree can't be repealed. Verse 13, they replied, your majesty, Daniel one of the captives of Judah refuses to obey your order or the decree that you signed. He prays three times each day. Imagine what the king is thinking at this point. The king, realizing he's been trapped, has no way out. He himself has already admitted that these laws cannot be repealed. And now Daniel is in the crosshairs. Verse 14. The king was very displeased when he heard this. The king knew he was played by his own men and that nothing could change at this point. Goes on and says, he tried every way he could think of to save Daniel. Until sundown, he did everything he could to rescue him. Daniel, he knew the God that he served could do it all. 
Daniel wasn't shaken by this. Daniel was standing steadfast in his loyalty towards God. Verse 15. Then Daniel's accusers gathered in front of the king. They said to him, Remember, your majesty, the Medes and the Persians have a law that no decree or statute the king makes can be changed. Verse 16. So the king gave the order, and Daniel was brought to him and thrown into the lion's den. The king told Daniel, May your God, whom you always worship, save you. And then he was thrown into the den. At this point, it looks like the coalition of conspirators had him. For Daniel, it was finished. How could he rise against this great opposition? The conspirators, they made the classic mistake of underestimating the God of Daniel, the one who was in the fire with his friends, resided in Daniel. And they made the biggest mishap of their lives. They had no idea who they had challenged. Verse 17, after Daniel's thrown into the lion's den, a, a stone was brought and placed over the opening of the den. The king put his seal on the stone, using his ring and the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation could not be changed. That is an impossible situation. What did she say? He's in a hole, dropped down into the den with a bunch of hungry lions, and then they put a stone on top of the hole. There's no way out. There's not, there's not a chance for Daniel to crawl out of this den and escape with his life absolutely an impossible situation. His conspirators, well, you know they were gleeful and gloating over their victory. They thought they had finally did away with this Daniel. They were most likely congratulating themselves and boasting in their unstoppable agenda. After all, after all, in their estimation, they just eliminated their political opponents, or so, or, or so thought. Verse 18, then the king went to his palace, spent the night without food or company. He couldn't get to sleep. At dawn, as soon as it was light, the king got up and quickly went to the lion's den. Now, keep in mind that a king of an empire doesn't just get up without anyone paying attention. Doesn't just leave his palace without anyone paying attention. He's the king of the Medes and the Persians. He has an entourage. He has guards. He has strong men all around him. The minute he's up, they're up. When, when the king runs to this place, there's an entourage of the king's men with him, no doubt. Verse 20, as he came near the den where Daniel was, the king called to Daniel with anguish in his voice. Daniel, servant of the living God, was God whom you always worship able to save you from the lions? I, I always wondered, 
How long was it before Daniel answered the king? <laughs> 10 seconds, a minute, a couple minutes. You can imagine the king, you know, in anguish. You know, Daniel, did your God save you? And then there's a pause, right? I wonder what all of those around the king were thinking. After all, they thought they were wiser than the king. They played the king. They set the king up. And now Daniel's dead. Or is he? Verses 21 through 22. Daniel said to the king, Your majesty, may you live forever. He, he praises the king for showing up the next morning, right? May you live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they couldn't hurt me. He did this because he considered me innocent. Your majesty, I haven't committed any crime. Think about that, right? Did he not commit a crime? Daniel says, I didn't commit any crime. He says he's innocent. Was he or was he guilty? Did he not break, break the edict? Think about that for a moment. We find this throughout biblical literature. Breaking an illegitimate law is no crime at all in the eyes of the king of heaven. In fact, illegitimate laws are made to be broken. And what determines if a law is illegitimate? It's the law of the king. Does the earthly law line up with the heavenly law or does it undermine that heavenly law? If so, it's designed to be broken, broken by righteous men and women, righteous men and women that will take a stand against illegitimate laws that undermine the king of heaven. Verse 23, the king was overjoyed and had Daniel taken out of the den. Can you imagine the king just dancing around? He was probably so happy. Can you imagine the joy? And can you imagine the fear of all of those around him? The king was overjoyed and had Daniel taken out of the den. When Daniel was taken out of the den, people saw that he was completely unharmed because he had trusted in his God. You see, faith in God and loyalty to his law garners the favor of God. And the favor of God is always a game changer. We're to grow our faith by spending time daily with God and his ways. Live by faith. Live by faith, not your circumstances. Live by faith and not by sight. Why? Because God can do it all. God is in the business of doing the impossible. God loves to do that. If God is for us, who can stand against us? Daniel 6.24 The king ordered those men who had brought charges against Daniel to be brought to him. They, their wives, and their children were thrown into the lion's den. Before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions attacked them and crushed their bones. You don't want to touch God's anointed. You don't want to touch on his people. This is the lesson for the world around us. Leave the people of God alone. In fact, bless them and you'll bless yourself. Oppose them. It will be your own undoing. I cannot imagine when the king took his men 
to throw them in the den, what they were thinking, what they were saying, and that he gathered their wives, their wives, wives, what can you learn from that? Don't let your husband get off track. <laughs> you, you know, you safeguard your husband, you safeguard yourself, right? That's the lesson of Daniel, at least back in this day. They even took their children. That was a wake-up call that day. Jesus says, when I come again, I'm going to deal out retribution to those who touched on my bride. In 1 Thessalonians, you can read about it. He's coming back, dealing out retribution for those who rejected him and hurt his people. Getting back to Daniel's story, 625. Then King Darius wrote to the people of every province, nation, and language all over the world. He sent this out through his empire. I wish you peace and prosperity. I decree that in every part of my kingdom, people should tremble with terror in front of Daniel's God. Think about that for a moment, right? Let's put that up. That's slide 80. I make a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people should tremble with terror in front of God, Daniel's God, the living God who continues forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed. His power lasts to the end of time, unlike our visuals, right? God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. God's kingdom is coming to us, growing in this world. We're told to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth now as it is in heaven. God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. In Jesus, we are a part of this everlasting kingdom. This rule and reign of God and Messiah is unstoppable and indestructible. We're to hold our heads high and live the dream of faith and its outcomes. Daniel 6.27 says he saves, rescues, and does miraculous signs and amazing things in heaven and on earth. Our God is a miracle-working God. He saved Daniel from the lions. He's a God of signs and wonders. This is, a one, this is one of hundreds of stories illustrating that God loves to do this in heaven and on earth. Our job is to have faith in God, to wait and watch for what he will do for us. 2 Chronicles 16.9 states this, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. We need to make sure that our hearts are fully his. We're fully submitted. We're on fire for Jesus. We're not complacent. We're not passive. We're full of faith, looking for the challenge of faith. God says, if you're doing that, I'm going to find you, and then I'm going to use you for my glory. I'm going to give you my strong support, and you'll see what many others have also seen. You want the favor of God? Be like a Daniel. Devote your life fully to God. Spend time with God daily. Daniel, three times a day, 
Spend time with God daily. Be in his word daily. Foster that relationship. As you spend time in the word, your faith will grow. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The more you invest in God and his ways and trust in him, the more bold you become. You become bold as lions, just like Daniel and his three friends. And then God moves on our behalf. He moves on our behalf. He is the God of the impossible. He is the God of miracles. I say, let's believe God for the impossible. Our lives should be marked with signs and wonders. And then one day, we will step through the gates of death into his presence for the greater things to come, for the greater things to come. It just gets better and better and better. I'm going to tell you a story before I close. Don and I were not supposed to have kids. When she was weeks old, six weeks old, she had double hernias. They went in, they did surgery, and they discovered that her ovaries were twisted in the hernias. And so they basically said, sorry, uh, but, you know, we, we, we corrected the problem, but she will not be able to conceive and have children. And then we found out on our wedding day, because neither one of us knew that. Uh, I'm very grateful that my mother-in-law never told me. No, I've forgiven her. I've forgiven her. So anyway, um, we went on to trust God for the impossible. And we had our first child. We called her our miracle child. That was Jessica. And then years later, it was prophesied over us that we would have another child. And so we decided and, and, and bore witness in our hearts. And we decided that we're going to name this child our promised child because God promised us another child. We were overwhelmed with his goodness. So we, we, we said, well, this is our promised child, right? And it would be years later that we would have her. In fact, we got to the place where we thought we didn't hear from God. We must have missed God because Don was already 38 and, you know, we were getting out of our childbearing years. And so we thought, well, you know, what's going to happen? And lo and behold, she gets pregnant. It was so funny. We, we were so convinced that we had missed this whole uh, thing that Don says, hey, why don't we take off of our insurance the pregnancy rider, because that's going to save us X amount per month. She says, because, you know, we're not going to have any kids. Yeah, I mean, other than Jess, we were grateful for. She says, but we're, we're not going to get pregnant at this point. I said, you're right. So we called our insurance. We took, her, took that rider off. And that month, boom, pregnant. I thought, oh, my gosh. Anyway, we're so excited. We didn't care. We were just so excited. Um, didn't have anything to cover the pregnancy, but... God made a way for that. That's another story. God, God made a way. We, we didn't paint anything. We, 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 that was covered 100%. That's another story. That's another story. So, and I don't got time for it. Um, but we went, we went in for our first ultrasound. We had a great uh, registered nurse who was also a midwife that worked with uh, Denver area doctors uh, in, in terms of uh, what she did. And so we were connected with her and uh, a medical uh, doctor as well. And so um, we went to our medical doctor to get our first ultrasound. We were so excited, so happy. We went in this little room, and Don got her, her, you know, uh, got the jelly and the little deal they put on, and we're going to watch on a TV our baby in her womb. So he turns off the lights, the computer's up, you know, he's got the deal, he's going, and he goes, okay, okay, he says, there's your baby, there's your baby. And he says, we're looking 
top down, if, as if you're standing over the baby and looking through the baby's head towards its feet. We're right on top of the head. And so we're looking, and it's kind of coming into focus. And on top of her head, at, at the skull, uh, are these two, two, what appears to be tumors, you know, at the top of the skull. And the doctor goes, oh, no. Oh, no. I'm thinking immediately, immediately, I, I, almost, I almost threw up. I got nauseated that quick. And I'm thinking, as he's saying, oh, no, no, I'm thinking, what, what? Shut up. Use your inner voice, you know? <laughs> the parents are here, you know? And he moves on the screen to the side where the picture is, goes down to where it says brain, and he clicks and, and he clicks box, box that says abnormal. And again, my knees buckled. I almost passed out, almost passed out. He jumps up, he turns on the light, and he says, just wait here, I'll be right back. Goes out, goes to his office. You know, we wait there, which seemed like an eternity. It was just minutes. And he says, uh, come into my office. So we went into the office and he says, uh, I'm sorry to inform you. He says, we, we have a major problem here. Uh, we're going to have to do some more testing. And, um, and, and he says, I just want to let you guys know that, you know, at your age, the risk of, of you know, brain development and, and possible Down syndrome, other things, is super high. And so um, we're glad that we've cut this early. We want to do some tests because you have a, a window here, a window of time that, that if it's what I think it is, you can terminate the pregnancy. You still have time to terminate the pregnancy. I said, excuse me, we're not terminating the pregnancy. He said, well, you'll want to do these tests. I said, no, I, you know, we'll do your tests, but we're not going to terminate the pregnancy. We already knew this coming into this. This is our child. We're not terminating the pregnancy. If our child isn't whole, if our child is disabled, it's still our child. And we're not terminating this pregnancy. He says, well, I'm, I've called. He says, you know, I got good news. He says, the, 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 the top doctor in the nation for this type of problem actually practices right here in the Denver metro area. He says, so I got to call into him and we're going to schedule an appointment with him on like, Mon I think it was Monday morning he was going to do that. So we said, okay, well, you know, schedule the appointment and we'll, we'll go see him. And he says, I have another doctor on, on the line and she wants to talk to you. So we got on the line with her and she said, hi, I'm so-and-so. -so. She says, we're going to do an amniocentesis. I don't know, is, did I say that right? Any doctors in the room? Amniocentesis. Anyway, they do this particular deal where they'll discover some things through this test. And uh, both Don and I said, you know, we're not comfortable with that. We're not, we're not going to do that. We'll, we'll see Dr. George. We'll do this ultrasound level four, which is a much better view of what's going on with the baby. But we're not going to do this other one. And she said, no, you're going to do this other one. And I, I said, what? She goes, no, you're going to do this. She goes, in fact, you can't see Dr. George unless you do this test. I said, well, we're going to see Dr. George without the test. She says, no, you won't see him because we schedule him anyway through our office and you won't see him unless you do this test. I said, well, I'll tell you what, we'll come down for your test on Monday morning. I said, but we are going to see Dr. George. She says, good. So they set the stage and, and I still wasn't going to take the test. I didn't tell her that. I just said, we're going to come down there. And we did. We showed up in the morning and Donna and I are there. And so she says, okay, well, let's get ready for this test. And, and then I told her again, so I, I said, well, actually, we just want to see Dr. George. And she says, well, you, you can't see him. I said, listen, 
We were told we could see Dr. George, and that's what we're going to do. She says, well, he's not in today. I said, what? She goes, he's not in today. So we're going to do the amniocentesis, and then we'll schedule Dr. George later. I said, I already told you we're not going to do that. And then Don says, you know what? I just lost my, my um, uh, stepdad like two days ago, and I'm just grieving over that. I'm so traumatized by that. She goes, I don't think I can do this test right now. This doctor says, we, you know what? She goes, that's actually a good thing because since you're already grieving, you know, if we, if we discover today that you need to terminate the pregnancy, it's better that you grieve all at once than to separate these two events. Yeah, we're thinking. I told Don, I said, get your coat. I stood up, I said, get your coat. And so Don stood up and she went and put her coat on. She goes, what are you doing? I said, we're leaving. She goes, hold on, hold on. She goes, if you, if you want a level four, I'll wake up another doctor. It's his day off. I'll call him. I mean, she puts the big guilt trip on us, but she's going to call this other doctor and get him in. And, but she's still going to do the amniocentesis and get this other doctor in. When she said that, the doors off, opened up at the end of the hallway. These two doors just burst open, and this rotund little man comes barreling through, and he's walking at a good pace. He's got an entourage of younger doctors around him. They all got clipboards, and they're asking him questions, and he's answering the questions, and he starts walking again, you know? He looks super important. I thought, that's got to be Dr. George, you know? So he walks past us. As he's walking past us, I said, Dr. George, and he immediately turns around. I thought, bingo, it's him, you know? I said, Mark and Don McClellan. I said, we're supposed to see you. Our doctor so-and-so, he said we would schedule an appointment. You were going to see us today, and so can you see us? So he turns around to the receptionist, and he says, am I booked this morning? She says, no, your, your whole morning is cleared. He says, have him get ready. I'll meet him in room, you know, 241 or whatever, you know? I said, yeah. I was like, yes, you know? So uh, the other doctor, she was, she was just so angry. She just stormed off, stomped off. So we go down, we go in there, and Dr. George says, look, I was clear this morning. I don't have anyone here in my office to help me. He says, uh, hold on a minute. He says, I got to get someone in here to help me. He comes back in with this other doctor. Because there was no one else, he got this other doctor to work with him. Her job was to print out the pictures he would take for a level four ultrasound. And so he's going to take a whole bunch of pictures and she's got to print them out and give them to us. And so I'm sitting in there. I said, Dr. George, I said, this level four, um, I was told that it wouldn't, wouldn't give us the indicators to tell us whether or not we have this particular problem. He says, that's not true. He says, that's not, who told you that? I look right at that doctor. She's looking at me. I'm looking at her. We're like staring each other down, you know? I said, well, I just heard that. I just heard that. He says, that's just untrue. That person doesn't know what they're talking about. Yeah. And then, and then, and then he says, he says, I'm taking some pictures. I told the other doctor, he says, give them to the McClellan's. And he says, um, the first thing we're going to do, he says, it's true. There's indicators. And with each indicator in place, the risk is higher and higher that you're going to have these problems. And he says, the first one is your age. He says, certainly that's a risk factor. He says, beyond that, he says, we'll do the ultrasound. He says, the first thing we're going to look for is a club fist. He says, the babies that have this particular problem, he said, they have club fists. They don't open up their hands. They just keep them closed in the womb. And he says, that's the first one we're going to look for. So he gets the little thing up, and it's super clear. I mean, it was a, it, the level four is just really, really intense. And they're better today, because that was a long time ago. Anyway, 
He says, okay, we're looking at the baby. He says, okay, there she is, side profile. And he says, um, he says, okay, he says, let me see your hand. Let me see your hand. And Shana in the womb turns around and looks straight in the camera. And then she goes, he goes, well, she's clearly saying something to us. And so she goes like this. Then she goes like this. Waves at us. No lie. Waves at us with, a, with an open hand. He says, all right, check that one off. He goes, print that picture out. Bring it over to the McClellans. So she had to print, print it out, bring it over. Went through. Every sign was negative. None of them showed up. He says, you guys are good to go. He says, now let me tell you something. Doctors make this, this mistake over and over and over. They see these two, what appear to be tumors, on the top of the head and automatically think the worst. He says, this is very rare, although it occurs. He says, she has a brain center kind of where all the veins kind of come together. And that's like the nutritional uh, place for the brain to develop. It's the nutrition center. He says, in rare occasions, a child will have two. He goes, all that means is this little baby's going to be super smart. <laughs> Yeah, it was the exact opposite of what they're saying and then wanting to push us into a termination of our pregnancy. Why? Because that's our promised child. I told Don, Don, it makes sense. Of course, our promise will be attacked. Of course, the enemy is going to do whatever he can to take away what God has promised to us. I might even tell part two of the story next week. But suffice it to say, Whatever you're facing, whatever people are saying, whatever the professionals are saying, show respect and honor, but you put your trust in God and you seek his face and you believe him for the impossible because our God is a God of signs and wonders. Our God can do the impossible and often does. Not always, but often does. So put your faith and trust in him. You'll never, ever regret it. I'm going to end there. That's, that's a good place to end. So <laughs> praise God. Amen. We love you, Lord. Hallelujah. <laughs>